Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us, whether live right now, on demand later, a podcast, days, months, or years later. So glad that you're joining us. We're starting a new mini-series out of the book of Philemon. Now, let me just begin up front. This story is not fiction. This is real. This happened. This is historical. And this was so important that God chose to include it within Holy Scripture. It's a real case study on the ground in unity, in forgiveness, in the kingdom of God, working itself out down here on earth as it is in heaven in a local church context. And like I shared multiple times this year, the Holy Spirit prompted me and others that this book actually needed to be gone through this year. And now we're going to realize why. Now, hold on, everyone. This book is going to challenge us and hopefully change every single one of us. No one's going to be able to say, well, I sure hope so-and-so is watching this message. No, no, none of us are going to get out alive through this one in the sense that we're all going to be touched and changed. It's only 335 words. It's one chapter. But trust me, it, it packs a punch. Let's get to the setting. Paul writes to a man named Philemon who lived in a town called Colossae. He was part of a church that Paul wrote to, and maybe you know it. It's the book in the New Testament called Colossians. He most likely became a Christian when Paul was preaching for two years in Ephesus. Now, Philemon was a man of great wealth, and like every other wealthy person in the Roman Empire, he was a slave owner. Now, one of his slaves' name was Onesimus. Now, let me stop. We're only a minute in. This man, who was a Christian, and, and, and oh, by the way, not in name only, a real Christian, had eternal life, is a slave owner. How you doing? Here's how another summarizes the crisis that leads to this part of God's word. A slave named Onesimus had escaped from his owner, Philemon, and run from Colossae all the, way, all the way to Rome to disappear into that large urban environment. Now, once in Rome, Onesimus, whether by accident or design, we don't know, came in contact with Paul, who led the runaway slave to faith in Jesus Christ, of course. Now, Paul had already been, write, already been planning to send a letter back to the Colossian church. So in 60 or 61 AD, from a prison cell in Rome, Paul writes this personal letter to Philemon and sent Onesimus, the slave, back to Colossae. Now, hold on, did you catch this? Paul sends the slave back to the slave owner. Anyone feeling uncomfortable yet? Now, Paul's under house arrest in Rome. You can read about that in Acts 28. And remember, as I say all the time, context is king. History matter, matters. You can't place 2021 back into 61 AD. So when you heard me say the phrase slave, slavery, or slave, or, or master, what did you immediately think? What image came into your mind? Well, I want you to hold on to that because there's a good chance what you're thinking might not be appropriate to this text. Now, for some of us sitting here in 2021, we know that slavery has never been as bad as, as it is today. We now have a new name for it. It's called human trafficking. 
I love AD21's definition. Human trafficking is the abuse of children, women, and men for their bodies and labor. It's modern-day slavery. Through force and fraud and coercion, people everywhere are being bought and sold against their will right now in the 21st century. Now, here's what's shocking. Some of you know this. There are more people in slavery today than recorded in any other time in human history. It's a $150 billion industry yearly. And here's the shocking fact. If you have 1,000 people in a room, 5.4 out of every 1,000 people on earth is a slave right now as I'm talking. That means there's at least 40.3 million people right now globally that are slaves. It takes many forms. Here's one. Labor trafficking is forcing a person to work in in captivity with little or no pay. Let me give you a real example of this. Thailand has the third largest fishing industry in the world. It's created a massive need for cheap labor. There's a good chance that the shrimp you ate this week probably came from Thailand. But there are multiple accounts of slavery and brutal forced labor. Here's one of the shocking facts. When they did a survey, 60% of those in in that community that worked on those boats had seen a ship captain literally just murder one of their crewmates without impunity. This got so bad that the Thai government actually created an oversight task force to deal not only with the murders, but of course with the slavery. But the problem is they actually only oversee registered boats, which is less than 20% of the whole Thai fleet, and they don't even have enough money for enough interpreters to deal with all the languages. There's a great example of modern slavery. Another form is sex trafficking. Forcing or deceiving or coercing coercing a person to perform commercial sex acts. Now, slavery is seen in that way all over the world. It also can include forced marriages, making children child soldiers. More than 10 million children a year between the ages of 5 and 18 are forced into unwanted marriages. There are at least 2 million children, as I'm speaking right now, that are sex slaves. 400,000 of them are boys. This is just a small taste of the global sinful pandemic we're facing right now, today in this moment, called slavery. And by the way, when you give every week to Sanctus, and I hope you do, part of those funds goes to fight this because our partners locally and globally are on the front line of stopping this wicked evil. Now, when I said slavery, probably most of you thought of what we call the colonial version of slavery in the New World. The most comprehensive analysis of that experience is actually what we call the Transatlantic Slave Database. Between 1525 and 1866, 12.5 million Africans were kidnapped and shipped to the New World. 10.7 million survived the dreaded passage and either arrived in North America, the Caribbean, or South America, but 1.8 million human beings died between the African experience and then over here. This is what most of us think about. I found this incredible story, firsthand account of slavery that brings home that terrible, terrible moment in history. It's a man named John S. Jacobs. He lived from 1815 to 1875. He was enslaved in North Carolina as a child and escaped to freedom in adulthood. He wrote to be a man and not to be a man. A father without authority, a husband and no protector is the darkest of fates. Such was the condition of my father 
and such is the condition of every slave throughout the United States. He owns nothing, he can claim nothing. His wife is not his, his children are not his. They can be taken from him and sold at any minute as far away from each other as the human fleshmonger sees fit to carry them. Slaves are recognized as property by the law and can own nothing except with the consent of their master. A slave's wife or daughter may be insulted right before his eyes with impunity. He himself might even be called on to torture his own wife or children and dare not refuse it. To raise his hand in their defense is the death penalty by law. Here's the phrase. A slave must bear all things and resist nothing. If he leaves his master's premise at any time without written permission, he is liable to be flogged and beaten. Yet it is said by slaveholders and their apologists, we are happy and contented. Wicked, evil, satanic. Now, when we think about that period in time, most of us only think about the Western experience But what we don't realize, or most don't realize, is there was an unprecedented kidnapping in the opposite direction at the same time within the Muslim countries of the Middle East. The number of slaves held over 12 centuries in the Muslim world was also another 12 to 15 million that were stolen, kidnapped, and sold out of Africa eastward. Okay, so we come to Paul. We come to Peter, others dealing with slavery in the Roman Empire, and now we all need to ask, sitting here in 2021, well, what was that like? What was similar? What was different? What did Paul think about when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write 1 Corinthians and Philemon and Ephesians and Colossians? What does Peter think about when he's addressing slavery in 1 Peter? Now, as we're about to see, and it really matters, there are vast differences and terrible similarities between all three versions of slavery. So all of us need to go back to Rome to begin to understand. In Roman society, there were three groups of people, classes of people within the Roman world, and only three. It was sort of like three legal standings. Roman citizens had full rights and protection under the law. Paul was a Roman citizen. Then you had another class called freedmen who had restrictions, but still most protection under the law. And then you had the servant class or slave class. Now, listen to this one scholar as he paints the picture That really will help us. He said, central features that distinguish, make different, first century slavery in Rome from later practice in the New World are the following. And we got to get this to understand Philemon. Racial factors played no role in slavery during the Roman time. Education was greatly encouraged in slaves during the Roman time. Some slaves were better educated than their own owners. It, it, it enhanced a slave's value. Many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions. Now, here's, this might blow your mind. Slaves in Rome could own property, including other slaves. Also, their religious and cultural traditions tended to be the same of those who were citizens or freeborn. And here's another thing that might blow your mind. There was no law in in Rome or beyond prohibiting the public assembly of slaves. And perhaps above all, the majority of urban and domestic slaves would be legally uh, available to become free at the age of 30. That was just the law. So slaves were doctors 
And slaves were teachers and philosophers and musicians and actors and secretaries and stewards and artists. In fact, as one noted, all the work of Rome was done by slaves. The Roman attitude was, what is the point of being the master of the world and doing any slave? We need to live in pampered idleness and slaves do everything else. So that gives us the differences and they are big differences. And it matters. But it's still not good. Slavery is still evil, even if it's the better version of evil. I love when Scott McKnight, in his work, outlines the the differences, but still the darkness in this moment. Let's listen to him. He says, what needs to be repeated over and over is that slavery is a legal status more than it is an occupation. Just sit with that so you get it. Slaves can be found performing nearly every occupation in the Roman Empire. Farming, philosophy, crew labor, working the mines, refined attention to the master's wife, routine domestic chores, practicing medicine, from being a wet nurse to being a sexual partner to being a prostitute. Slavery was not, in the Roman perspective, equated with ignorance or incompetence. But slavery was still slavery. Slaves lacked full legal status. Therefore, when a society was built from the inside out on the basis of family, the family slave, for example, enters into the deepest form of limitation. Male slaves remain boys, and their manhood, of course, connected to family and autonomy and inheritance and dignity, is still denied. Because slaves had no standing, and because marriage was a legal act, slaves could not marry, so there was a substitute for marriage in Rome. Slave marriages were not legal marriages, but they were permitted arrangements. Now, such relationship did not guarantee either that they would not be sold or their children would not be sold or their spouse would not be sold. Slave marriages were still contained within the master's economy and the stability of a slave family was connected to the master's money. Many slaves were captives of war. Others had been rescued from exposure or starvation. Some were kidnapped by pirates for the sake of slavery. A few people chose to sell themselves into slavery because they were in a bad condition. Others chose to be slaves. Regardless, the elimination of any sense of humanity and rights established a slave culture of living death. The evidence of the harsher reality of slaves must not be missed or minimized. Slaves were slaves and the slave's body belonged to the master. The only way to alter the demeaning reality of slavery is to treat a slave as a human being in order to begin to create a culture where each person has integrity and respect and equal standing. No matter how normal slavery might have been in the Roman Empire or a better version than what we think about in the United States or in other places, slavery is still slavery. So then we got to ask ourselves another question to really get into this. Well, what could a slave do 2,000 years ago to stop being a slave? Well, you could revolt. And there's a very famous revolt under Spartacus. Maybe you know that. And there was this massive slave revolt, and 6,000 of them end up being crucified. Some people murdered their masters. Other people committed suicide. Some ran away like Onesimus. But there was this other option called manumission, The process of moving from slave to free person. So if your master died, you could apply for this. If you became 30 years old, you could apply for this. Actually, one person writes, the process of being released from slavery is recorded, for example, on the ancient walls in Delphi, just north of Corinth. A ritual took place in the sacred temple in which a slave would pay a priest uh, to actually purchase their freedom. Now, slaves This is interesting. Slaves negotiated the transaction on their own and their master was not even present. And once freed, the slave's name was inscribed on the walls of the temple. 
So you moved to a different legal status from servant class to freed person class. So with all that background, (laughs) with modern slavery and colonial slavery and then Roman slavery, what do we do? And actually, what's the Christian worldview on this? Now, this is going to get interesting, and this is going to get uncomfortable for all of us. And remember, this is God's Word. The earliest time Paul deals with slaves is probably in Galatians. Galatians 3.28, the famous, famous salvation statement. There is neither Jew nor non-Jew, slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not saying these distinctions go away. This is not some argument like I've heard lately for gender fluidity in 2021. This is not saying your ethnic history doesn't matter. Remember, when we talked about race and reconciliation, people of color were saying this verse has been used almost to de-remove their ethnicity. No, 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 no. Let's first and foremost remember that this is a salvation statement not a social statement. He does not say, you know, our unities in family or in politics or in the market or business. He says it's in Jesus. So Jews are still Jews and Greeks are still Greeks and fill in the blank. Jamaicans are Jamaicans and Germans and Japanese and men are still men, by the way, and women are still women, but our unity is in someone beyond us. It's in Jesus. This is repeated in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we are all baptized into one spirit as to form one body, whether Jew or non-Jew, slave or free. We're all given the one spirit to drink. So don't miss this. The power of our unity is found in Jesus and his spirit, which is eternal. We all have the same salvation. We all have the same access to God the Father through Jesus. We all are plunged into Jesus' spirit, uh, baptized into Jesus' spirit at our conversion. This is not a secondary thing you pray for. This is the entrance point. And the promise of the Christian faith, whether you're Jew, Greek, slave, free, whatever, is physical resurrection is guaranteed for all of us. That, like I've shared before out of 1 Corinthians, the gender you have now, you will have in eternity. The ethnic expression you have now, God values it so much, you're going to have it for eternity. But the one thing that does not ripple into eternity is your legal standing or economic standing of slave and free. That's not going into the new heavens and new earth. So the economic difference isn't eternal, but it doesn't change just because you become a Christian. You don't just accept Jesus and everything changes there. So here's what Paul says so far. No one's inferior in God's eyes. No one has less access to God than anyone else. But the question is, how does this begin to change everything else? So let me say this again. First, our unity in Jesus changes how we all access God, but it also begins to change how we love friends, enemies, employers, and employees. But notice, Paul does not call for freedom. There's no march here. There's no down with slavery here. Now, there are the seeds of the new kingdom, the seeds of the church, which, of course, are antithetical to the Roman world. Paul's words above already are beginning to break so many boundaries. What he's already declared is pure revolution. All human beings are made in the image of God and are loved by God and valuable. Wow. And all human beings can encounter God through Jesus, and all who trust in Jesus the Messiah will have access to physical resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. That is incredible. That's mind-blowing at that moment and in this moment. But our question is, but Paul, what about right now? Well, Paul addresses slaves living in non-Christian households in 1 Corinthians. 
In 1 Corinthians 7, 21, this is what he says. Were you a slave when you became a Christian, when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. What? <laughs> Although if you can gain freedom, oh, oh, please do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when is called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves to human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were when God called them. Excuse me? So this is what Paul says. <laughs> Number one, we're really all free in Jesus in the end because actually he set us all free. But we're also all slaves to Jesus because he owns us and he's the better master and the better Lord. So everyone's a slave, but who do you really want to own you for real? But deeper, Jesus will make all things right in the end. And then we say in 2021, but Paul, like, don't you care? <laughs> oh, very much so. Again, one person gives us very needed context to hear this right in this highly charged moment we're living in. Here's what one theologian writes. For Paul, and also the early church fathers, the importance of preaching the gospel in light of the soon return of Jesus took priority over the social order. This didn't relate only to the issue of slavery, but to marriage as seen in this passage. In these verses, Paul appeals to the Corinthian believers to remain in their current marital state, whether married or single, as a means of preparing for the coming of Jesus. So Paul's advice to his readers is keep your current social status. As a citizen, slave, single person, married. It was to enable them to focus more clearly on the great day when Jesus will come again. Ready? <laughs> I know some of you are getting really uncomfortable. Write this down. The gospel over social order because the gospel has the greatest impact and change that ripples into eternity. Now, don't miss it. Paul says, if you have the ability to become free, please do it. Please do it. But he does not call for full abolition here. He comes close, but doesn't go there fully. So what is important is Paul does not call slaves, interestingly, to revolt, to murder, or to run away, but to witness, wow, and to live under the true lordship and ownership of Jesus. Again, I'm going to quote Scott McKnight. He starkly wrote, what is clear is that in 1 Corinthians, Paul is not pressing for manumission, becoming a free person, as the inevitable conclusion of liberation in Jesus, but urging slave Christians to pursue it only if possible. This, I would contend, he writes, is as close as Paul gets to the modern notion of abolitionism, but it is not what we think, called abolitionism. Well, that's a lot to chew on. Now, the conversation is far from over. Now, near the end of Paul's life, Paul calls out slave trading as a damnable, hellish sin. I mean, he says in, in 1 Timothy 1.9, we also know that the law, God's commands, is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels and the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their moms and dads, for murderers, for the sexual immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, for liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul says, oh, listen, God is never okay with slave trading. 
Now we move to another moment. More and more people are becoming Christians. The Jew, non-Jew, slave-free thing is actually now becoming a reality. And now the question becomes, what do you do in a household when the slave and the master both become Christians? And this is now where we arrive at Philemon. So if you've got a Bible, turn turn to Philemon digitally, virtually, physically, and let's begin. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Okay, this feels like just a normal nothing greeting, but it's not. First of all, notice it's not a private letter. It's written to multiple people, though Philemon's the key person. And this is going to be read in the local church, in his house, and to multiple other churches. And the goal by Paul here is not just to confront one, but all. They're all going to have to accept this runaway slave as a brother in Jesus. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now, some think Aphia was a Philemon's wife. I would probably agree with that. And ministry partner, possibly. Others think that all three of them are actually three church leaders running three church churches in three homes. We do know that Acrippus actually was a church leader because it says in Colossians 4.17, tell Acrippus, see, it, see to it that the, you complete the ministry you've received from the Lord. Okay, let's do verse one again. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Now there's so much here we need to get so we at Sanctus Church can work towards the kingdom of God breaking out even more among us. First, let's remind ourselves Paul is under house arrest in this moment. This is not the he's about to be executed moment in 2 Timothy, but he is in a bad place. He's awaiting trial in Rome. Now, here's the interesting thing. Usually Paul starts a letter by saying, I'm Paul, an apostle. I've got authority from Jesus. You really need to listen to me because I've got God's backing. But here he doesn't say that. He says, I'm a prisoner. Why does he do this? Because Paul wants to start this letter by reminding Philemon and this local church that he himself is marginalized at this moment. He himself is being treated unfairly at this moment. He actually is a living example, humility, hope, forgiveness. But more, notice, he's not just a prisoner because of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why does that matter? Because he's declaring Jesus is in control. Jesus is going to have the last say. Jesus the Christ is Jesus the Messiah. So the Jewish leaders that are opposing Paul are actually opposing the God they think that they know and worship. But more, since Jesus is Messiah, that means Jesus is king. Not Rome, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So catch all of this. This is being brought up intentionally all up front. Jesus is in control. Jesus is king, and we know that Jesus' kingship produces a different hope and a different set of rules and a different set of values, eternal values, that correct and fulfill the Jewish faith and undo much of the Roman world. All of that in one verse. All of this is being used intentionally to set up the conversation about slavery. So Paul says, now that's clear. He says to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. (laughs) Okay, pause. Do you see it? Philemon is a good, close friend of Paul and Timothy. There's no doubt about Philemon's salvation at all. No doubt about his standing with God through Jesus. He is Paul and Timothy's brother. But there's more than meets the eye. 
He's not just a friend, he's called a fellow worker or co-worker. This means something. This phrase is used time and time again in Paul's writings. Ready? 1 Thessalonians 3.2, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker. 1 Corinthians 3.9, we are God's co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's, build, God's field and God's building. That's referring to a guy named Apollos. 2 Corinthians 8.23, as for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. Romans 16.3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of non-Jews are grateful for them. Later, even in Philemon, in verse 24, he says, Mark, for example, and Luke are my fellow workers. So this is not just a generic phrase, but it was used to describe Christian leaders in the early church. Why does this matter? Philemon is called a co-worker. Philemon has pastoral authority. He's a church leader. So not only does the church meet in his house, which points to his wealth, but he is a leader in this church. He is on the same status, ready, as Timothy, Luke, Mark, Apollos, Titus, just to name a few. He's a pastor or elder or leader in the church of Colossae and a slave owner at the same time. Hmm. Okay, let's make the needed connections. This church had already received a letter called Colossians. And in brief, Paul already told them God's will for what a Christian household now needs to look like. Not a Roman household, a Christian household. And what did he say about slaves? Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as for working for Jesus, not for human masters. Since you know that you as a slave will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. O masters, <laughs> provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. So we don't have a call for slaves not to be slaves, but we do have a call for slaves to actually do their work for Jesus. They are also reassured that in the end they will receive an eternal reward, and they're also reassured that any injustice towards them will not be swept under the carpet because Jesus is going to judge everyone, and there's no favoritism, and no one gets away with abuse. Oh, and if you're a Christian master, you must be right and fair for actually you as a Christian master are a slave yourself and you're accountable to God how you treat anyone in your household, children, wife, family, slaves. Okay. So Philemon is well-regarded. Philemon is affirmed. He's called, he's being used by God and he's a slave owner at the same time. And Paul has not, interesting, removed his leadership, doubted his leadership, doubted his salvation, even though he owns slaves. How you doing? Now, things get more and more uncomfortable right about here. And, and as I keep going, let me pause and just say, Philemon's scripture, right, everyone? This is not just Paul's opinion. This is God's word. This is the final authority for faith, life, and practice. Not Paul, God. <laughs> okay, Paul keeps on uh, uh, going. Like he always does, Paul builds on and builds out what we have and what we share together, what we hold together, what we've been given together, our common faith, before he challenges, calls for change, and confronts us. 
So listen to what he writes, not just to Philemon, but the whole community. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, like I've preached before, this is not just a hallmark greeting. This is the summary of what we've been given. Grace, undeserved mercy before God. Peace, shalom, a restored relationship between you and God our Father and the Lord Jesus. This is what every single Christian has experienced, and this is God's ongoing gift over you. Grace leads to peace. As one said, cause and effect, root and fruit. God's free, kind, undeserved, unmerited love is given in and through Jesus, his life, his death and resurrection to all of us that want it. And notice again, you can't earn these things. You can't achieve these things. You can't buy these things. They are undeserved. But God, because he's love, gives us grace and peace. And notice again that grace and peace come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And I need to do this every time I see this. God the Father and the Lord Jesus are put on equal footing. Paul is a Jewish rabbi, an Orthodox Jew, and he places Jesus on the same level as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From the very beginning, Christians have accepted the deity of Jesus. Okay, that's only three verses, and we're going to stop. We need to be reflective now. We need to be formed. Remember, what does the Scripture do with us? It corrects us, it rebukes us, it encourages us, it trains us. So out of all of we've, we've started talking about today, and there's lots to process, what have we not only learned, what is God saying to us? One, we've got to be reminded of what we share together. The gift of God is our starting point in unity. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being is incredibly valuable. Every one of us on earth is a sinner. Every one of us, according to Ephesians, is an enemy of God because of our evil behavior. The Bible says we are slaves, every human being, to sin. We can't say no to it. We're slaves to death because it's got us. And we're positional slaves to the devil. And yet God, through Jesus, provides a way back. Through Jesus, we are set free from the evil master of sin, death, and the demonic. And through Jesus, if we accept him, we have grace and peace with God the Father. It's gift, not earned. And Jesus becomes our better master and better Lord because he leads us best. And Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. And we all together have a guaranteed physical resurrection. And we're all going to be rewarded and restored no matter what our life was like down here. And God will not let injustice win. This is our common faith, our common inheritance. This is how you have to see every single other Christian. You can't get to the conversation about forgiveness or reconciliation or facing down slavery until you start here. Our unity, number two, is deeper than most of us want it to be. See, God's calling is our starting point in unity. Not my views and not yours. If I told you next week that Philemon was going to come preach at Sanctus Church and I was so excited, and oh, by the way, he was a slave owner. You'd be like, I'm never going to that church again. That's not, are you even a Christian? Whoa. See, that's why I'm bringing this up. There are so many people that you so struggle with, but they actually are your brother and sister in Jesus. So let me say this again. We have nothing to do with whom God elects and chooses into his family. That's not our business, it's his. So our unity is found in the work of Jesus and the Spirit. Our unity is found in who God the Father is called. And that's the starting point of it, nothing else. No matter whether you like that person's politics or not, whether you agree with whatever, listen, freeze. 
just start saying out loud if you go to Sanctus Church. That person, though I want to literally throw something through the internet, that is my brother and sister in Jesus. The unity has to be established before we get to the conversation next. Last thing as we get going in the series. This isn't a private thing. This is a family thing. Why does this whole conversation matter? Why is it going to matter? Well, because forgiveness and unity and love need to be worked out in God's family first. Forget trying to change society. The harder work starts at home first. Listen to what one said. The question lingering at the far edge of the section now becomes clear. It comes into view. What does the Bible say to modern versions of slavery? And I would add, and what does it say as we're trying to still deal with the slavery that's impacting us from the past? What would Paul say in our world to our churches like Sanctus today? He says, I repeat what I've already stated. Paul held a vision where the powers of redemption were shattering the status and power symbols of the Roman Empire. Paul's kingdom reality was to take root in the local church, beginning in households first. Ready? So ready? Household, local church, then society. From there, a new form of primary socialization could take root that could work itself all the way into society. The assault on modern slavery needs to start with justice in the church that spreads out to justice for all. In other words, Paul's vision given by the Spirit is in your personal family, if it's Christian, it starts there. And then from there, under the household rules, according to Paul, then it spreads to a local church and then to society. In other words, this conversation has to happen with us first before we march out there. Why? Let me tell you why. Because we're all members of the kingdom and we all have the Holy Spirit and we've got a power source in us that's different. That's where life change begins. Okay, that's week one down, only three verses. Lots to go through, lots to think about. Uh, Please, in your connect groups, pray and talk. And let me just end by saying this. Lord, thanks that you give us all access. Thank you for our inherent dignity and value. And we continue to pray that you would form us, rebuke us, correct us, and change us. And you'd bring us all to the center around Jesus, but also you'd confront sin and help us to move forward in unity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.